listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Psalm 24, let's jump in. We'll be in Psalm 24 this morning. Uh, as we've done the past couple times that I've been here on a Sunday, and, and by the way, my name is Michael. Um, usually my dad is preaching here. He came back from sabbatical a few weeks ago, and uh, he preached the past couple of Sundays, and so I wanted, we wanted to give him a, a bit of a, a break, just getting, you know, hitting the ground running, and so I'm here this morning. Uh, we'll be looking at Psalm 24. You have a copy of that there in a seat near you. If you don't have a copy, either tangibly uh, with God's Word uh, in print or on your phone, uh, that copy there is, if you want it, you can have it. Uh, you can keep it. That's for you. But what we're going to do this morning is I want us to look through the passage and we're actually going to begin with the very first two verses. And so in just a moment, we're going to read those together out loud. And then I want you to take about two minutes and look through those first two verses, just the first two, and highlight, underline, circle anything that stands out, anything that is significant, anything that maybe you have a question about, um, something that it just jumps out to you this morning. Maybe you came in here this morning, you're like, man, I am just sunken down in the middle of whatever this sin is, and those first two verses really point my attention to God. Write that down. Whatever that is, that's for you to keep either in your Bible, uh, your phone, iPad, whatever that is. Um, that's just between you and God. I'm not going to quiz you on that before we leave, but I want us to interact with the Word of God. And so as we, before we do that, we're going to read it, and before we do that, I'm actually going to pray for us this morning. Father, I pray now that you would send your Spirit to not just give me words to say about this passage, but that you would remind us that you have given us the Holy Spirit to illuminate your words that have been inspired hundreds of years ago. And these words are active. Your word is active, um, and it pierces even to uh, the division of bone and marrow. So we pray that now that you would speak to us, tap us on the shoulder, help us to hear what you want us to hear um, individually and corporately as a church body. I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that you would uh, remind us even now that we sit under your authority. Um, remind us that your word is without error. Remind us of your greatness, of your grandeur, and your love for us. We thank you for what you promised to do, what you're going to do even in these next few moments together. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read these first two verses together out loud. Um, you can either, it'll be on the screen. You can read it there from the scriptures if you have it or from the printed a copy that was in a seat near you. But let's read these first two verses, and, uh, and then we're going to take about two minutes. Uh, if there's a little bit of music, that's cool. If there's not, it's just going to be quiet, and uh, we're going to listen to see what God has to say to us. But let's read these first two verses out loud. Everybody ready? Head nod. All right, cool. Just making sure. Here we go. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. All right, go through there, highlight, underline, see what stands out to you, and uh, we'll pick that back up in about a minute and a half, two minutes.
All right, so from those first two verses, and we'll continue looking all the way through the end of verse number 10 in just a few moments. But from those first two verses, somebody help me out. This is non-rhetorical. So what word or phrase stood out to you from those first two verses? It's the Lord's. Yeah, what else? Was I hearing voices? All it contained, yeah, fullness thereof, yeah. He found it upon the sea, yeah. Go ahead, Bob. Those who dwell. Yeah. Anybody else? Established. Yeah, thank you. Somebody right here. He keeps it. Yeah. Founded. Yeah, these first two verses are pretty simple, right? Like there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff there. And for most of us, he's saying this is who God is. And so the psalmist sets up this psalm by beginning with almost this doxology, this reminder of the greatness and the grandeur of who God is and what he has done. So this is essentially a call to worship, which Richard read over us this morning. Uh, that's what the psalmist here is doing. He's saying, remember who God is, what he has done. So let's walk through these first couple of verses. If you see here in verse number one, the earth is the Lord's. And you see in the second half, the world and those who dwell therein. So he begins here by saying, uh, he, he, with this macro, and then he's going to come down very micro to us individually. But he uses the word earth and the word world. So essentially what he's saying is the ecology of all that exists. He's saying plants, um, any trees, any fungi that exist, any animals, all of those things, all that goes into the ecology of the world. God created those things, anything that contains life. Then he says those in the world and those who dwell therein. Who is the those there? That's us. Yeah, that's us. Those are the people. So essentially, in verse number one, he's saying everything came from God. Notice he doesn't say everything is God. He doesn't say that things created themselves or there was some way that they can form themselves. No, it, themselves. It's ex nihilo, from nothing. God spoke. There is one divine, divine creator. The rest is creation. Divinity lies within God. Then we get to verse number two, and verse number two explains why verse number one is true. So look at verse number two. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to. It's his good will, it's his good pleasure that he did that. That's it. He established, he founded it. Uh, Abraham Kuyper, he, he said this, and this, I got a couple of quotes for you. This will be on the screen. But Abraham Kuyper said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine! Everything that we see, as we look around, as you drive home, as you everything, if you look up into the stars, whatever it is, the Lord Jesus Christ says, that is mine! Over all land, sea, animal, people, anything that's been created, that is the Lord's. The first two verses remind us of that. And everything was made according to his design, according to his purpose. And actually we see, if you go back and look at verses, uh, sorry, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, God created, he spoke everything into existence, and boom, it was good. We see this, this perfect beauty, this great design, colorful, things are interactive, things are going really well, Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. We also see that same image in Revelation 21 and 22. At the end of time, things are going to be made right. This is the design, the purpose, the creation of God. His plan, and all in the middle we have Genesis chapter 3 all the way until the middle of Revelation even though it looks like, man, the world is crumbling, things are going really poorly, the plan of God will not fail. He created, he designed it for a purpose, and it will come to fruition. He's the one who designed it. All right, so here's what we see in these first two verses. We see, and it was in, it's interesting, some of y'all's answers, some are focused on the, on the people side of the creation, and some are on the God side, the Trinity side of God created. And that's okay, both of those things are there. 
Here's what we're going to see throughout the rest of the passage is this mutual advent, this mutual, uh, these two spheres of existence. One is the sphere of God. One is the sphere of humanity. And these two spheres are going to collide together. So we see this advent of humanity. What was that? Over here? Humanity was over here and God is over here. And those two existences are going to come together. And we're going to see what happens because they cannot coexist the way that they are. All right? So I want you to pick up in verse number three and do the same thing. We're going to just go through verses three through six. Everybody say three through six. Okay, in verses three through six, do the same thing. Underline, circle, highlight what stands out to you, what is significant, what maybe you have a question about in verses three through six, and then we'll jump back in in about two minutes. Before we do, let's read these verses together. These will be on the screen, or you can read from the scripture. Beginning in verse number three, let's read this out loud. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Real quick, that word selah right there at the end, it means to stop, meditate, think about that. So that's what we're going to do. All right? Two minutes. Here we go. All right, so what stood out to you from those four verses, verses three through six? Anybody? Okay, such is the generation of those who seek him. Yeah. God gives us blessing and righteousness. Yeah. Say it one more time. Yeah. God of his salvation. Anybody else? Who shall stand in his holy place? Yeah, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Cool. Say it again. He tells us who, yeah. In verse number four, who shall ascend? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, right? You must seek him out, yeah. It says, seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob, yeah. Say it again. Vindication, yeah. 
4 and 5 are conditional. 5 realizing the Lord. Oh, 5 relies on 4, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 4, four is an interesting verse right there, right? It's kind of that hinge verse. It's an answer to verse number 3. And it's like, wait, that's kind of a bummer sometimes, right? It's like, man, okay, Corey, stop. You're, you're, stop. Well, we'll get there, all right? All right? I know I'm the one talking. All right. Look at verse number three. What is, it says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? So this is the question that he's asking, right? What is the hill that he's talking about? And then he says later, um, or right, right after that, who shall stand in his holy place? So what is the hill and what is the holy place? The temple, yeah. Why is that significant? It's where God dwelled, right? So he's saying this is the presence of God. In the Old Testament, we have the literal presence of God there at the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. So he's asking the question, who shall ascend? Who can stand? And what's the answer to that question? We just talked about it. Who's, who, what's the answer to that question? The person who has clean hands and a pure heart. All right, so who can be in the presence of God? Go ahead and raise your hand. Man, this psalm is a real bummer, right? Man, it started out so strong. Yes, God is great. He created all things. And then we see, we see the sphere of God's holiness coming to impact the sphere of our sinfulness. You see that there? But the question that he asks in verse number three is not rhetorical either. He's asking for an answer. He's not just saying, oh, yeah, it's impossible. Nobody can. He's saying, no, who can? Who can come into the presence of God? And in the Old Testament, in the age of the temple, who could go into the presence of God? The high priest. So could somebody go into the presence of God in this context? Yeah. Now, the context may change, but is the question still valid for us this morning on June, whatever it is? I don't even know, 19th or something. Um, 2023, several thousand years after this was written, is that what it is? What did I just say? July? I don't know. Well, I was over there laughing at me. <laughs> Look at this idiot. I mean, I'm with you. I'm with, I mean, I agree. July 19th, 2023. I don't know. At least it is. Today's the 23rd? Well, I don't know anything. So... The person, if you look here, verse number four, we'll just get back to the Bible, all right? Sorry. The person who has clean hands and a pure heart, this is the person who can enter into the presence of God, who can know God intimately. The person who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. In other words, the person who can know God intimately is the person who is blameless. The person who has pure motives, pure attitude, pure intention, who has not lied this past week, whose thoughts are pure, who hasn't not just looked at anything impure, who hasn't just said anything mean or with anger to their spouse or to their kids, but the person whose mind has not even gone there, pure inside and out. No takers? No takers? Again, this is not a rhetorical question. He's saying, do you think that you can come into the presence of God? Because in verses 1 and 2, look there. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then in verse 3 and verse 4, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's kind of like this. It's like, a, it's like if you're at a wedding or a dance hall. If, I don't know if those exist still. Um, but if, if, you know, if music is going and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, man, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Man, this is awesome. And the Macarena is playing. You know, so you're like, well, my God, I believe in God and I don't know nothing. And then all of a sudden, verse 4, it gets there like, you can't. It's like the DJ going from like this jam to like this slow jam. And it's like, grr, 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 you know, and then it's like, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on for a second. And the dance floor clears. You know what I mean? It's like that. It's like, whoa, whoa. This is really bad news. What started out is like, yeah, yeah, we, we agree with this. This is awesome. God is great. It's like, wait, I, I can't know this God because I cannot enter into his presence. We're here in these first four verses confronted with the holiness of God and we are confronted with our sinfulness. Now, the context of Psalm 24 is 2 Samuel chapter 6. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, what had happened is the Philistines, everybody say Philistines. No, everybody say Philistines. 
That's right, not Philistines, all right? I heard that. So uh, the Philistines, because we want to sound educated, all right? Um, so no offense to anybody who's related to me who preaches here. On, uh, but the Philistines, so uh, the Philistines had actually come in and conquered uh, the Israelites. Everybody say Israelites. Okay, we can agree on that one. So the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant back to their land. And then because of their sinfulness and that kind of thing, well, the Israelites go back to the Philistines. They conquer the Philistines. They give the Ark of the Covenant back. And the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God dwells there. You cannot touch the Ark of the Covenant. So it's on these long poles and everything's got to be just right. Well, they put the Ark of the Covenant on the back of this cart to transport it back to Jerusalem where it belongs. So as they're going back, there's a guy, his name is Uzzah. Everybody say Uzzah. He, as the cart is going down the road, there are some potholes and um, it's like the, the splost or whatever that is. You know, it hasn't caught up with it yet. So um, it's going through, hits a pothole. And all of a sudden, Uzzah, he reaches up to stabilize the cart. You see this right there in 2 Samuel 6. The story is all there. He reaches up to touch the Ark of the Covenant to help it so that the Ark doesn't hit the ground. And as soon as Uzzah touches the cart to stabilize it, to help the presence of God, it seems like a really good thing to do. Uzzah drops dead, boom, right there. Because he, in his sinfulness, had come into the presence of God in his holiness. Boom, he drops dead. Everybody freaks out. They're like, whoa, 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 okay, we gotta, we're going to park the, the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to park it at Obed-Edom's house. His house was right there. Everybody say Obed-Edom. So they park it at Obed-Edom's house, and for the next couple of months, Obed-Edom, man, his life is going great. His, uh, he wins the lottery. Uh, his, his pigs don't die. His cows are multiplying. His wife is better looking. He has, like, all this stuff. It's amazing. Things are going really well because the presence of God is there with them. After a few months, David goes to the Lord. He says, I really want to get the Ark of the Covenant all the way to Jerusalem. The Lord says, okay, now it's time. You recognize my holiness, my splendor, my greatness. You recognize, understand your sinfulness. So he says, here's what I want you to do. So David, again, this is still in chapter 6, 2 Samuel, he, he takes the Ark of the Covenant and they begin transporting it back to Jerusalem. But what they do is every six feet, they stop, they build an altar to the Lord, and they sacrifice two animals. Now to us, that sounds crazy. It sounds wild. And they're about six miles, sorry, about 10 miles from Obed-Edom's house to the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. <laughs> 10 miles. Every six feet, they have to stop and make an altar, sacrifice animals to the Lord. You're like, why do they have to do that? Because they needed to understand the holiness of God and understand the sacrifice that was necessary for them to transport the presence of God back to his rightful place. Even there in 2 Samuel 6, the context of chapter 24 here, we have these two worlds colliding. The holiness and splendor of God and the sinfulness of mankind, they cannot coexist. Here's what we see. Here's the first thing. I have five things I want us to see this morning. The first one is this. The presence of God and beauty of heaven would crush us. The presence of God and the beauty of heaven would crush us. If we were to enter into the presence of God, even this morning, if we were to step into heaven in and of ourselves, we would be crushed, just like, just like Uzzah was, because we came into the perfect presence of God. It is impossible for us to enter in. So that's the context of this passage. The, the kingship of Yahweh is like an asteroid that is heading for earth. You've seen these movies, right? Um, what is it, Independence Day? There's an asteroid heading for earth. The earth is not going to continue to exist in the same way that it does if the asteroid is not taken care of. Both of those things cannot coexist in the way that they are. If you like old westerns, same thing. Somebody rides into town, a bad guy, and then he ends up, you know, toward the end having a duel with a sheriff. Both of them aren't going to remain alive. They're just not. Somebody has to die. That's, that's the nature of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. G.K. Chesterton said this about sin. He said, sin is the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved. When I first read that, I was like, yeah, yeah, but what about, oh man, that, take, that takes some faith. What, what about, now that takes some faith too. And all of those, I, I believe all those other doctrines are true, absolutely. But when we look around at sin, it is the one area that all of the world agrees on. The only place that really I think we're fighting about sin is inside the church. 
It is the most controversial issue within the church. When does sin begin? Whose fault is it? How much sin is too much sin? How do we deal with this sin? Do we keep this person out? Do we forgive this person? Whatever that is, inside the church, we're all arguing about sin, but it's the one thing that the world has figured out. Yeah, sin. We can agree on that. It's the one part of Christian theology that is true. Sin is the point where all of philosophy, religion, all of culture, it all comes together and it agrees that something is wrong with the world. You can go back and you can ask Plato, Socrates, you can ask Sigmund Freud, you can ask um, Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, MLK Jr. You can ask whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or something else. Whatever you are, here's what you're trying to answer. The question that you're trying to answer is this. What is wrong with the world? We can all agree on the fact that something is wrong with the world. And we've been asking this question for centuries. We know that something is wrong. And here's what the scripture says. You are what's wrong with the world. I am what's wrong with the world. Because we are the ones who have rebelled against a perfect, holy God. It is because of our sinfulness that we are in the mess that we, were, that we are in. So here's the definition. The second thing I want us to see this morning Here's the definition that we're using for sin. You can use a variety of definitions. That's fine. Uh, But an easy one that I like to use is this. Any attempt, sin is any attempt to meet our deep needs by our own resources. Sin is any attempt to meet our deep needs by our own resources. We talk about how in Genesis 1 and 2, we see creation is is spoken into existence and it's beautiful and it's perfect and God comes down and he breathes his breath into the dust and he creates mankind in his image and he has man and woman in in perfect community with the Trinity which is in perfect community and everything is beautiful. But then like 10 minutes later, we get to Genesis chapter three. And in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, instead of believing what God said, even though they're created in his image, they believe the lies of the serpent, and they take a bite of that pomegranate fruit or whatever it was, and they say, you know what? I do want to be like God. I want to have the knowledge of good and evil, and they take a bite of that. As soon as they do, boom, they immediately realize their nakedness. They understand, oh man, now we have stepped into sin. We have rebelled against a good God and creator. What do they do immediately? They try to go cover themselves with fig leaves. They run and they hide. And what does God do? God comes in the cool of the evening and he says, Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Which is a Jewish Hebrew way of saying, come and confess. Like, come into the open. He says, where are you? And they're over here in the bushes, hiding, covering themselves for fear. What is God going to do to us? We have tried to satisfy this deep need of being like God, of knowing good and evil with our own resources. This is where sin enters in. But here's the good news, friend, because we have these two worlds colliding, God's holiness and our sinfulness. And the only way that we can make sense of existing even today, supposedly July 23rd, 2023, the only way that we can make sense of existing with the presence of God and forever in the perfect presence of God is with a sacrificial lamb. That's it. That's the only way. Because if you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 6, for 10 miles, they had to stop and make sacrifices every six feet. You can get your iPhone out if you want to and do the calculations. It's just over 9,000 sacrifices they had to make. A lot of sacrifices. That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of time. That's just a lot. A lot of death. But the beautiful thing for us, friends, is that we don't have to make eight or 9,000 sacrifices over the, just, to under, just to get within the presence of God because Jesus Christ was sacrificed once and for all. He was put in the ground after living a perfect life for us. He was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who was put to death for us. He took the wrath of God on himself. He took our sinfulness. He took the holiness and the perfection and the beauty of God. And he took and he identified with us in our sinfulness. He became sin for us who knew no sin. And that's where these two worlds collided. Now he is the sacrificial lamb. He is our hope. 
We no longer have to fear. We no longer have to run. We no longer have to live in shame. Maybe you come in this morning and I would ask you, have, have you ever felt the overwhelming need of forgiveness? God, man, I need to be forgiven of something deep within my soul. Do you hear the voices of the enemy saying, you don't have clean hands. You're not a man or a woman of a pure heart. Do you ever feel defeated in your sin? Like, man, I'm struggling. I just can't get up for another breath of air. I, I just can't do it. Maybe this morning you think, man, if people around me knew what was actually happening inside of me, they would never want to talk to me again. Maybe in light of God's perfection and of his presence, you feel like a complete failure. Maybe you think there's more that you have to do. Maybe you think that you need to keep wearing this mask of happy, happy, joy, joy, amen. Good to see you, brother. And I would tell you this morning that even though we hear those voices and we believe those lies from the enemy, Jesus Christ, in the same way that he said this to the woman called in adultery, he says this to you, neither do I condemn you. In the midst of feeling that shame, Jesus Christ comes in and says, you do not need to be condemned. I was condemned on your behalf. There is therefore no more condemnation for you. In all of your badness, in all of your rebellion, in all of your goodness, in all of your religiosity, there is no condemnation for you because it was placed on Jesus Christ. Here's the third thing I want you to see. Is that love that you cannot seem to outrun, it is the only thing powerful enough to change you. That call from Christ, dear child, where are you? Where are you? Come and receive my righteousness. Come and receive salvation. It is made available to you through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now we as sinful individuals, because of the blood of Christ, can enter into the presence of God today and for all time. Look at verse number five. So verse four, who has clean hands and a pure heart? Ugh, we're sunk. Verse number five comes in there. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That word right there, somebody, meant, somebody alluded to this a moment ago. He will receive blessing. In the Hebrew, that word is passive. That means you can do nothing for it. It's not like, I'm going to go out and receive this. No, no. You kick back, you are unable to say, that's what I want. No, no. You have to receive it only by the grace of God. Only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ can we be made righteous, living in a right way. So if we look at verse number five, we're like, oh man, that's the righteousness I want. How do I, how do I get better? How do I attain more righteousness? How, what, give me a checklist of things to do. That's not what he's saying, friend. He's not saying you must in and of yourself because you cannot be righteous enough for the presence of God. It must be received as a blessing. God did not lower his standard of holiness. He did not change his nature. No, the love of God is what sent Jesus Christ to the cross. And Jesus Christ identified with us so that we could identify with him. So that now the Father can call out to us, where are you? I love you. I want to be in relationship with you. Even in my holiness, even in your sinfulness, we have Jesus Christ as an advocate. He has paid the price for you. Where are you? The fourth thing is this is that God cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. All the way from creation, even in chapter 3 of Genesis, God says, don't cover yourselves with that. Come, I'll cover you. I'm the one who's going to make a sacrifice, who's going to kill an animal so that you can be covered. There in Genesis 3, we see it. Because God's heart is too bound up with yours. He cannot hold himself at a distance. You are created in his image. You are created to be in a loving, beautiful relationship with him. 
he cannot bear to keep himself at a distance. And that's why in verse number six, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. What happens to Moses when he goes up on the mountain? Does he see the face of God and then come back looking like a nuclear halo? No, no. The back of God, he notices the back of God as God has him wedged in this cleft in the rock and he's sitting in there just kissing his tail goodbye. The presence of God goes by and the back of God illuminates Moses' face for days on end. And here we're told to seek the face of God. There's something intimate about being with the face of God. This is an intimate relationship that he's talking about here, a personal, individual relationship, one where you know God and he knows you perfectly. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can know his presence, his righteousness, we can know salvation. All right, verses seven through 10. Spend about a minute uh, looking at verses 7 through 10, those four verses, you'll notice some repetition there. And then we'll come back together and we'll close this passage out. Let's read these verses together out loud. This will be on the screen if you want. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. So let's stop and meditate, ponder on that. And then we'll look at the rest of this passage. So from these last set of verses, what word or phrase stood out to you from those? Yeah, it seemed like a song with the repetition. Yeah. The hope in what now? Yeah, the hope in the answer in verse 8. Yeah. And in verse 10, right? I'm just kidding. It's the same thing. Anybody else? That the king of glory may come in. Yeah. Here we see that, oh yeah, go ahead. The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Yeah. What does that, what does that remind you of? What's that picture? What does that remind you of? He's like, Jesus? That's right, Jesus, that's good. Um, we'll go with that. I don't like being put on the spot either. When we think about Lord of hosts, what does that remind you of, anybody? Warrior king, yeah. Those hosts are the army, right? Yeah. Here's what we see in verses seven through 10. We began with the earth as the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, everything. Who can go into the presence of God? Only the person who is perfect ain't us. We need somebody in our place. His name is Jesus. And then we close with these verses with a reminder and a declaration that the king of glory cannot be resisted. 
He is going to be on his throne. He cannot be resisted. He cannot remain at a reasonable distance. He can't just say, okay, you exist in your sinfulness. I'll exist in my holiness, and we'll just call it even. That's impossible because God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He is not going to negotiate with the enemy either. He's not going to negotiate with Satan. He's not going to negotiate with Pharaoh. He's not going to negotiate with what's happening inside of your mind. Eh, well, it's just a little. He's not going to do that. He is not going to negotiate with any other power that would have lordship over us. Here's why that's important. Because when the king of glory shows up, or another way of saying it, when our two worlds collide, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, when our two worlds collide, someone has to die. They cannot coexist. Someone has to die. And rather than killing us, Jesus died on our behalf. Colossians 1 says this in verses 21 and 22. It says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We are reconciled. We are made one with a loving, perfect, holy God. We no longer have to be crushed by his wrath because in the death of Christ, he put to death our punishment. That's a good place to say amen. In the death of Christ, we no longer have to die in the same way. Here's what Philippians 2 says, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Interesting little parallel to Genesis 3 there, right? But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God did that. Jesus did that for us. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Romans 6 says this in verses four and five. It says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher uh, in the 19th century, he said that Psalm 24 is about the ascension of Jesus up into heaven, up into his throne. And here's why that's important. If you look there at verses 8 and verses 10, uh, he says, Who is this king of glory? The Lord. He's strong and mighty. The Lord, he's mighty in battle. Who is this king of glory? Verse number 10, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. This warrior king came and engaged the forces of evil and the forces of death, and he won. He's victorious over the grave. He's victorious over our greatest enemy, which is death. He's victorious, and then he ascends up into heaven. Look at verse 7. It says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. His battle is done. He ascended back up onto the throne. Verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates. I had somebody ask me a couple weeks ago. They said, what, is, what do the gates represent? Is that like, what is it? And you can read some commentators, and they, they try to pontificate on these things that the gates could be. These are the gates of heaven. I told this person that. They said, yeah, yeah, but what do they mean? Uh, it's, like, um, it's like the gates. <laughs> and... They're in heaven. Yeah, yeah, but it's got to mean something else. It does. But I'll tell you next week if you get lost. These are the gates of heaven. Lift up your heads, old gates. That's it, that the king of glory may come in. And lift them up, old ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. He's there. He ascends up into heaven. He is sitting, making intercession for us. Then he sends the Holy Spirit to us. Here's what Hebrews 7 verse 26 says. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Who's the one that can enter into the presence, the holiness of God, year after year? The high priest. Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest, enters in. It is fitting that we should have such a high priest. He is the one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He is the one who is making intercession for us even today. And this is the king of glory that you must know. You must know this king of glory to be in his presence. 
That's the only requirement for you to be in the presence of God is that you know that you are one, you are in a relationship with the King of glory. And so I would plead with you this morning that you would confess your sin to him, that you would say, I'm a person who does not have clean hands and a pure heart, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus, now I can be seen as holy. Friend, when, Jesus, when God the Father looks at you today, guess what he sees? Holy, holy, righteous, clean, pure, saved. That's what he sees today. That's really good news for us. There is no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. And this is profound, all right, everybody? This is, this is what you tithe for, okay? Statements like this. The alternative to hiding is the refusal to hide. Mind blown, I know. But here's the, here's the alternative to hiding in your shame, in your sin, trying to cover it up by yourself so other people don't find out, so you don't feel bad. You can make excuses or explanations for all these things. I, if they don't know about it, I don't have to confess it. Maybe God doesn't know about it, so I'm not gonna confess no. He knows. The alternative to being over here covering yourselves with fig leaves, doing a really poor job of removing your shame, the alternative is refusing to hide and saying, I'm a sinner. I have messed up. I am going to mess up. I'm not the perfect father. I'm not the perfect spouse. I'm not the perfect driver. I'm not the perfect coworker. I'm not the perfect boss. I'm not it. I need something. We don't make much of ourselves. We make much of the grace and the glory of Jesus. And here's the last thing that I want you to see is that when God forgives us, there is not less of us, but more of us. When we confess our sin to God, it's not like he's amputating our leg and say, let me get rid of that sin. And then we go hobbling back. Okay, I guess I'll confess again. Oh, also, you know, it's not like that. When we confess our sin to God, there is more of us. Because what is weighing us down and encumbering us is our sinfulness. So we come into the presence of God. Thank you for your grace. I need your grace because I am a filthy, wretched sinner. I need Jesus more than anybody else in this room. I need Jesus way more than anybody else recognizes. To him be the glory and the honor. In spite of my sinfulness, I'm given his holiness, his righteousness. We make much of him giving that to us, us receiving that blessing. So I'd plead with you this morning. We're going to sing a song in just a few minutes. It talks about how the, the end of the story has not been written yet, but we know how the story ends. And I would say to you, you don't have to come before Christ erasing or deleting or editing or copying and pasting parts of your story to make yourself look better before God. No. Because your story is not finished, you're still here. You still have breath in your lungs. And that means God is not done with you yet. When we look at the context of Psalm 24, you can go back and look at Psalm 22, which talks about Jesus Christ on the cross. He is the priest, the perfect high priest, and the lamb that was slaughtered for us. You look at Psalm 23, the chapter right before. He is our good shepherd who leads us. He is our perfect prophet. And here we see he is our perfect High King, everything has been done for us so that we can be brought back in and see the face of God. We can experience his presence. That is what we made for. That is what is going to fill the longing, the deep desires and longings of our heart. So I would plead with you that you would surrender to him today, this King of glory. He is your only hope. As we participate in this meal that we call communion, and we do this each and every week, and there are stations set up around the room. The bread represents the broken body of Christ. The juice is the blood of Christ. Um, back here, we have a gluten-free section set up. But I would tell you this, as we do, is that in our place, Jesus Christ ascended the hill of death. So like the psalmist says here, we can ascend the hill of life. Jesus Christ was clean. He was perfect so that we could be made righteous. He was lifted up, but before he was lifted up into heaven, he was made low, so that we could be lifted up with him for all of eternity and resurrection. In the Old Testament, we have um, this holy of holies, the ark of the covenant, the presence of God. You don't come before the presence of God without first examining yourself. Otherwise, you may get sick or die. 
the only other place we see that in Scripture, or in the New Testament, the only command that we're given or uh, mandate that's represented for us, where someone, if you do not enter into that time without examining yourself or else you may get sick and die, is the Lord's table. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, 14, what you see there is that there are some in the church who were partaking of communion in an unholy way, and they were getting sick and they were dying because of it. You're like, whoa, I don't remember reading that part. That's all right. It's probably later this year in Bible reading plan, but it's there. Go read it. And I would implore you to consider your heart as we partake of these elements because this is the New Testament representation of the presence of God. Jesus says, as you do this, remember me, not just with your head, but with your heart, with all of, you, with all of who you are. And if it was just a thing to happen in your head, well, what's the point of the tangible nature of bread and juice? We dip it in there as a physical, tangible reminder of the presence of Jesus that we get to experience today. So I would plead with you, those of you who are in faith, you are welcome to this. But do so with first confessing your sin to God. Nailing those to the cross, he has paid for those. Claiming his victory, he is king over all. And as we leave from here, his presence goes with us. His life is on our lips. His light radiates from us so that all the world will know that he is the king of glory. Friends and family, I would uh, plead with you now that you would fall upon his mercy, either for the first time or yet again, even today. And as we do so, you're invited to join me in this meal of communion.